Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. Our sermon text for this morning will be John 7, 37 through 39. Uh, last week we looked at the chapter as a whole, and this week we will be focusing in on just those three verses. And before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we do pray that you would come and be with us now, that you would be in the preaching of your word, that you would be at work in our hearts, that you would draw us to Jesus, that you would help us to see him in all of his glory, that you would give us a renewed rest in the gospel and a trust in Christ and a reliance upon the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John 7, 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I love the Scriptures. I love the Scriptures for a number of reasons. Uh, for one, it is God's Word, and it's true and right and good. For another, in the scriptures we see Jesus. God's grace to us comes through his word. In the written word, the Bible, we see the living word, Jesus, God's son. Beyond those two life-shaping reasons, there is another. God's word is beautiful. It's a work of art. Not because any one writer necessarily was skilled, uh, some were, some were less so. Some parts are poetic, others are plain. But the divine author was weaving together his beautiful story. I want you to hear God's word this morning. I want you to see Jesus. But I also think you will see something of the beauty of God's artistry in the history of redemption recorded in the scriptures. Because of that, we're going to do things a little bit differently this morning. Uh, there is no outline for our sermon this morning. I know, I know, but we'll make it. We'll make it, even without three points. We're just going to make our way through the story, beginning in Genesis, funneling through John 30, uh, 7, 37 to 39, and then going on to Revelation, and then, of course, to today. So just a, a brief tour through the entire Bible. <laughs> Let's begin with a question. Are you thirsty? I don't mean, do you need a drink right now? I mean, are you thirsty in life? Now, I know thirsty is kind of a bad thing nowadays, uh, but even then, it captures something important, a sense of neediness and longing and desire. Are you thirsty in life? 
Do your job, your studies, your family, your friends leave you parched? Do the lives of others on social media wet your thirst for something you don't have? It, it looks like it's out there. It looks like others are experiencing it, but you remain thirsty, needy, restless, wanting, wondering, is it just me? Am I the only restless one here? Is everybody else satisfied? Is their thirst quenched? Have they found some kind of relief that I just don't know about? Why does that imagery work? This need to have our spiritual, emotional, relational thirst quenched. Water is fundamental to human existence. Water gives life. Uh, Psalm 104 celebrates God's work in creation, and one of the things that it celebrates is God providing water. At one point, it says this of God. It says, you make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches from your lofty abode. You water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees." God waters the earth, which both provides food and drink. Without water, there will be no grass for livestock, no plants for man, no wine, no oil, no bread. Without water, the mighty trees would wither and the birds would have no place to make their nests. All creatures would go hungry. All creatures would thirst. It's no surprise then that even in Genesis chapter 2, when God planted a garden in Eden, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became four rivers that spread out to water the whole land. And the imagery of water is, is, is so rich and so powerful that God uses it for his word in Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, say, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Water brings prosperity, flourishing, fruitfulness. And this is part of what Israel celebrated in the Feast of Booths. Israel was God's covenant people, the, the children of Abraham. God had made promises to Abraham and his children, and he kept them. When Israel was enslaved in Egypt, God heard their cry for help. He remembered his covenant. He saw his people. He knew their struggle, and God acted. He brought Israel out of Egypt by sending plagues on Egypt through the judgment staff of Moses to show Israel that he alone was God and to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. But getting out of Egypt was just step one. The goal was to get out of Egypt and into a land flowing with milk and honey, a land well-watered and fruitful. 
But first, God had to get them through the desert. So God provided water in the desert from a rock. You may remember the story. Moses struck the rock and water miraculously poured forth. God was that rock. At least he, he, he was represented by that rock. The Old Testament repeats again and again, the Lord is our rock. And in Exodus 17, Israel had grumbled against God. They, they tested him and put him on trial. They, they wondered if God could or would provide water in the wilderness. Or if he had brought Israel out into the desert just so that they and their children and their livestock would die of thirst. God, incredibly, rather than judging the people for their impertinence, stood beside Moses on the rock and took the punishment they deserved. Moses, the judge, did not strike the people with his rod of judgment. He struck the rock on which God stood. After their grumbling, we read this in Exodus 17, 5 through 6. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, because court was now in session. And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And that's what happened. God symbolically took the punishment for the people's grumbling and quenched their thirst in the wilderness. Judgment led to satisfaction. Eventually, of course, Israel did make it into the land. And one of God's covenant promises was that if Israel should keep his covenant, he would send rain. And he did. God said in Leviticus 26.4, I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And the land was fruitful. Now, God wanted Israel to remember his provision, both his supernatural provision in the wilderness and his natural provision in the land. And one of the things God did to that end was give Israel festivals, festivals to commemorate what God had done. The Feast of Booths was celebrated in the fall after the harvest was over and just before the winter rains came. And two things stood out in this feast. Uh, first, Israel was to gather fruit and branches from the flora of the land. And it was a reminder that God provided the rains that brought the produce. And second, Israel was to create booths, huts, tents made out of the branches to remind them of their time in the wilderness, that God provided for them that whole time. And so the Feast of Booths both celebrated that God made their wilderness fruitful and that he brought them into a good land. There was another feature of the feast that God added over time. The, the priests would lead a parade down to a well where they would get water and they would march up to the temple and pour the water out. Uh, again, it was a reminder and a celebration that God provides the rains, God provides the water God provides life. Just as he provided water from the rock in the wilderness, so he continued to care for his people. Now, you may know the rest of the story. The rest of the story is Israel didn't always keep God's covenant. God sent prophet after prophet to call them back to himself, back to faithfulness to their faithful God. But eventually, God's patience ran out. He is slow to anger, but that doesn't mean he never gets angry. And so eventually, after repeated sin and patient rebuke, God destroyed the land he gave them and removed Israel from it. 
Uh, Jeremiah put it like this in Jeremiah 4.26. He says, I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a desert and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. The well-watered pools became a desert. The fruitful land became a wilderness. And God took his people out of Israel and into exile. Just as Adam and Eve were cast out of the well-watered land of Eden, Israel was cast out of Canaan. It's not the end of their story, but it was a, a moment. Judgment because of sin. Of course, in the book of Isaiah, no sooner had God pronounced judgment than he began to promise restoration. I'm going to read a couple of larger passages from Isaiah, but listen to God's promises of restoration for his people. Isaiah 35, 1 through 10. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Again, Isaiah 41. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Finally, Isaiah 43, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. God was going to restore his people and turn the desert into a fruitful garden. But you know, sometimes the prophets, they they just kind of get going. And their imagery to our mind seems to get out of control. Uh, How would God create a garden out of the wilderness? Well, listen to what Ezekiel says. In Ezekiel 47, An angel of some kind brings Ezekiel back to the door of the temple in a vision, and we read this, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. 
And he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Now, Ezekiel then follows the water, and the further he gets from the temple, the deeper the water gets until it becomes a river deep enough to swim in. And at this point, the angel tells Ezekiel, wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Can you picture what Ezekiel saw? God will cause a river to flow out of the temple, which will practically fill the earth. And wherever the river goes, it will cause animals and vegetation, flora and fauna to flourish. Now, as you read through the Old Testament and and you read through these promises of of deserts becoming gardens, if you pay attention, you'll notice something else. It's not just water that God is going to pour out. It's his spirit. Water is a blessing of the covenant, rain in its season, but the spirit is really the summary and bringer of every blessing. As water causes flora and fauna to flourish, so the spirit is the real cause of all flourishing. Back to Psalm 104, Uh, Psalm 104, 27 to 30 says, all the creatures look to you, to God, to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. The spirit is the summary and the bringer of every blessing of God. Isaiah 32 talks about the spirit being poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becoming a fruitful field. Again, spirit leads to flourishing. Listen to another of Isaiah's prophecies, Isaiah 44. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. And notice this prophecy moves both from water to the spirit and from the land to the people. Right? God will water the land and pour out his spirit on the people so that they, the people, will grow like willows by flowing streams. You see, the growth of plant life it has become a picture of the growth of God's people by the spirit. The prophecy of the Spirit in Joel is familiar to many Christians because it's quoted in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, but it too moves from water to the Spirit. If you go back and read it in Joel 2, Joel says this, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The trees bear its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You see, Israel's real problem was never lack of water. 
God sending rain was not a long-term solution. Israel's real thirst went beyond the physical. Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. See, the thirst of our bodies is a created metaphor for the thirst of our souls for God. Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. See, the real problem was that Israel did not always seek to quench their thirst in the right place. In Jeremiah 2, God indicts Israel. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Israel's real problem was not lack of water. It was that they turned away from God, the fountain of living waters. Israel's problem was not lack of water, but rebellion against the God who sends rain in its season. And so Israel knew God's provision in the wilderness and in the land. Israel celebrated God's provision in the Feast of Tabernacles, but they also knew thirst. They knew what it was like for the rivers to dry up. They knew what it was like for the fruitful garden to become a desert. They knew exile because of their sin. They knew what it was like to hunger and thirst and wither and perish. They knew that because they kept looking to created things to satisfy broken cisterns that could hold no water. Where do you experience thirst? Where are you empty, parched? What do you look to to satisfy the deep longings of your heart? Do Do you look to reputation or family or career, peace and quiet, drugs and alcohol, health and wealth? What good thing have you turned into an ultimate thing? What empty wells have you dug to replace the fountain of living waters? And how's that working for you? Well, that brings us, finally, some of you might be saying, to John 7. Jesus is in the temple during the Feast of Booths. The people are celebrating God's provision of water in the wilderness and rain in the land. The priest pours out water on the ground as a mini river flowing from the temple. And there's one more thing you need to know. In John's gospel, he's already told us that Jesus is the true temple. John 2:19. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The people were befuddled and said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But John tells us Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the temple because he is God in the flesh, dwelling or tabernacling among us, as John put it earlier in John 1.14. And this theme is brought up elsewhere in Scripture. Revelation 21, 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And so back to John 7. Jesus stands up in the temple made with hands as the true temple, the one who is God with us. And Jesus stands up in the temple as the temple and cries out this in verses 37 to 38. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
And Jesus, at this moment, is directing all the hopes of Israel, all the promises of God, all the prophecies of old, the hope of the presence of God and the person of the Spirit. He is directing it all to himself. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If you sense that life is not what it should be, come to Jesus and drink. If you are thirsty for more, come to Jesus and drink. If life has left you parched, dry in the mouth, spiritually, emotionally, mentally dehydrated, come to Jesus and drink. Well, how do you come? How do you come and drink? Jesus tells us, whoever believes. That's John's message. If you've been here with us uh, for any of our studies in John, this is his great theme. Whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever believes will never hunger. Whoever believes will never thirst. Here Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now there is a question as to whose heart is the source of the rivers of living water. You see, is Jesus saying that rivers of living water will flow out of the believer's heart, or is Jesus saying that rivers of living water will flow out of the heart of Christ to the one who believes? It's actually not obvious. Uh, Commentaries are divided, and here's why I think, at least, that Jesus is referring to himself. First, uh, Jesus is not quoting any particular passage of Scripture word for word when he says, as the Scripture says. Rather, he is summarizing the Old Testament promise of the Spirit coming metaphorically as a river. We've already seen that the source of that river is the temple, and Jesus is the true temple. Second, this water imagery is picked up later in John. While on the cross, uh, John 19, 34, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. John is the only one who records this, and whatever the medical reason might be, it seems clear that John, with his constant double entendres, is showing us that the crucified Jesus is the source of living water. A third, notice what John himself says next of the living water. In John 7, 39, he says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When would believers receive the Spirit as living water? Not until Jesus is glorified. Now, that doesn't mean that the Spirit didn't exist before Jesus was glorified, nor does it mean that the Spirit was not at work, but there is a fullness to the Spirit's work bringing new creation that would not come until Jesus was crucified, raised, and ascended. And Jesus mentioned his ascension back in chapter 6, verse 62. And he just mentioned in John 7, 33, his returning to the Father. And so Jesus and John uh, have the ascension on their minds. Why? Because only when he returns to the Father will he receive the gift of the Spirit in fullness and then pour out the Spirit on his people. And this is what Peter says on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.33. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus is exalted to the Father's right hand, then receives the Spirit in fullness, and then pours the Spirit out on his people. Only when Jesus has completed his atoning work, only when he has been judged for the sins of his people will he receive the Spirit in fullness the Spirit who is the embodiment of the promises of God to Israel, and then pour out that Spirit on his church. 
Only once Jesus thirsted on the cross in our place could he quench our thirst with living water. Only once Jesus received death for us can he pour out life on us. And where, from where does he do that? The incarnate Jesus, the true temple on earth, ascends into the heavenly temple, the holy place made without hands, according to Hebrews, and there, from the Father's right hand, he pours out the Spirit. Uh, two things. First, uh, the temple faced east. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant in the earthly temple represented God's throne. For Jesus to sit at the right hand of the Father, as he does presently in heaven, would be for Jesus to sit on the south side of the ark. In Ezekiel's temple vision, the river flows from the south. It's an odd detail that seems irrelevant in its place, but perhaps it's not so irrelevant. Second, when John later has a vision of the new Jerusalem, there is no temple there because God and the Lamb, Jesus, are the temple, Revelation 21, 22. Flowing from the throne, the throne of God and the Lamb, Revelation 22.1, is a river. The very river described in Ezekiel that flows forth and gives life to the whole earth. And when we put all of these pictures together, what do we see? The river that flows from the temple is the spirit flowing from the heart of the ascended Christ. Psalm 46, 4-5, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. There is a river coming from the throne of God right now, the Spirit. When Christ began to pour out his Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that river began to flow. Jesus took up residence in his people, his city, his temple, the church, by his Spirit. And there will be an external element of that on the last day when the whole creation will be restored, no doubt. But that new creation has begun now by the Spirit in the church in our hearts. By pouring out his Spirit, God makes our present wilderness exile fruitful. And he will bring us into a good land, the completely completed, renewed creation on the last day. The river that flows from the temple is the Spirit flowing from the heart of the ascended Christ. Listen now uh, to these words of the prophet Jeremiah. With everything that we've said in mind, there's this interesting part in Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah says this, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who, whose trust is the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus. He is like a tree planted by water, the spirit of Christ, the rivers of living water poured out from Christ's heart as he sits at God's right hand. And the one who trusts in Jesus is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit." Jesus has not promised health and wealth and an easy life now, but he does promise to send his spirit to renew you, to make you fruitful, to cause you to flourish in the midst of the desert of this life, and to pour out his spirit on the last day to make all things new. Now you might ask, what does this mean? The, the rhetoric is great, but, but what does it mean to have our thirsts quenched and be made fruitful? Well, two things. Uh, first, what does it mean to have our thirst 
quenched. Jesus, by restoring us to our Father, satisfies the deep longings of our heart in our Father. Whatever you long for is simply an, an echo of a deeper longing. If you long for reputation, there is a deeper longing to be known and loved. If you long for a life that is safe and secure, there is a deeper longing for security in this life and the next. If you long for a good time, there is a deeper longing for a joy that lasts. These deeper longings are found in restored communion with the Father. His love alone can satisfy our deep desire for love and security and happiness. To look elsewhere is idolatry. But Christ restores us to our Father and restores communion with God by pouring the Spirit of God into our hearts. When we are restored to our God, our desires are both decentered because God is more important than our desires, and they are satisfied in Him. Well, second, how does this make you fruitful? It makes us fruitful in at least two ways. First, we now have the Spirit at work in us, and so the power of the Spirit at work in us, the power of living water flowing in and through us is the power to bear fruit like a tree by a stream. And second, we are now free, free from having to chase down satisfaction from things which cannot satisfy, and so free to love God and neighbor. We are free from the exhaustion of the pursuit of happiness and free from the fears and insecurities that come from never knowing whether and when satisfaction will come. And once you are free from the pursuit and free from the fear, you are free to give your energy to consistently and creatively loving God and neighbor, which is true fruit. Now maybe this all seems too odd or too fantastic or too good to be true. But God is at work to make pools in the desert, to make the once shriveled tree fruitful. Are you thirsty, dry? Do you feel parched, withered, brittle? If anyone thirsts, let him come to Jesus and drink. Turn from the empty cisterns of this present age. Repent of trying to find satisfaction in everything but God. Believe in Jesus and you will experience the living waters of the Spirit, making you fruitful in the present wilderness and giving you the hope of a well-watered land on the last day. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came. He was struck on the cross that rivers of living water might flow out from him. Father, we pray that you would help us to look to him and believe and that you would pour out your spirit on us and satisfy the deep longings of our souls in you, our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.